John 11, verses 17 through 37. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus did not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews were with her in the house and consoling her. When they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so overjoyed to be granted the privilege of gathering together to worship You in song and in giving and prayer and in the ministry of Your Word. We ask that You would cause our minds and hearts to be attentive to You and Your Word this morning. We ask that you would teach us, instruct us, correct us, rebuke us, encourage us, edify us in a way that only you can. Lord, I pray even this day that you might call some who are in this place, who are dead in their sins and trespasses to life, that you'd grant them new birth, that you'd grant them a living hope in the one name under heaven by which men can be saved, your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Have you ever received a consolation prize? You know what I'm talking about. The kind of prize they give out to those who don't win the competition. The idea that kind of reward is to comfort those who lose. It's as if to say, 
sorry you didn't win, but your effort wasn't wasted. Here's something to acknowledge the work that you put into this competition. Now, depending on the competition, the consolation prize can vary in form and in value. Anything from a little ribbon or certificate to sometimes uh, monetary rewards. And the greater the value of the consolation prize, the better its ability to provide you with some comfort should you be the one suffering the agony of defeat. Oftentimes, though, it's not so much the consolation prize that defeated competitors look to for comfort. The consolation that most losers need in those moments comes in the form of family and friends who help bear their grief and sorrows. Those who share words of encouragement and provide a shoulder to cry on. It's knowing that even in failure, we are loved and cared for. It makes the biggest difference to those who suffer defeats. And it energizes future activity and striving. You see, losing is a common experience for all of us. None of us win all the time. In fact, sometimes we can feel experts at failing. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. The world we live in is quite messed up. We live in a world full of depraved people, and we ourselves are no exception to that rule. For while problems abound all around us, our biggest problem is within us. We all know far too well that James's words are so true. We all stumble in many ways. He goes on to talk about one way in which we do. He says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man who is able to control his whole body. He goes on to describe that every sea creature, reptile, bird, or animal is tamed and has been tamed by men, but no man can tame his tongue. It's a restful, it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. I had the opportunity to visit SeaWorld over this last summer and provides a beautiful illustration of this biblical truth. You know, man can tame killer whales but we can't handle our own tongues. We're in need of help. We need consolation. We're all losers. We're all failures. None of us have towed the line. All of us have fallen short. And contrary to many gurus and supposed pastors today, we cannot help ourselves. It's not a matter of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It isn't about believing in ourselves or finding the champion in ourselves, let's get real. We've all attempted that. And we've all experienced and been confronted with the futility of those efforts time and time and time again. How many times have you said, I'll never fail in that way again? I'll never mess up like that again. Everything from here on is always going to be perfect. Meanwhile, how has it gone for you? You see, maybe if our problem was just a slight ailment of body and soul, then maybe a little sleep, maybe a little medicine, maybe a few vitamins would just take care of our problem. But our situation is much more grave than that. We're not spiritually sick. We're spiritually dead. The the physician that our souls need is one that's not limited to working with living patients. We need someone who has the power to work on the dead. And we're looking for more than a coroner. For the work that we long for is more than just identifying what our problem is and what the cause of death is. We want more than dissection. We want more than an autopsy. 
We need resurrection. We need life. And there's only one who can render us aid. Make no mistake about it, John 11 declares the unique position and power of Jesus Christ. The miracle that we're in the middle of discussing is climactic in Jesus' ministry. It emphatically declares who we must cry out to for help with our problem of deadness. Jesus puts His power over life and death on display. And through this act, most certainly declares His deity. Who but God can raise the dead? Everything in Jesus' ministry ultimately pointed to the reality of His personhood that He was fully God and fully man. But it must be admitted that some events leave absolutely no room for doubt. And this occasion makes plain that man's unbelief is not for lack of evidence. The issue has always been one of the hearts. You see, a cold, calloused, dead heart will reject the clearest evidence. Why? Romans 1 tells us, for it suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Jesus repeatedly showed Himself to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the long-awaited Savior. His words declared it. When people heard Him, they said, no one speaks like Him. Who has authority like this one? You're so unlike the scribes and Pharisees of his own day who quoted ad infinitum from various rabbis and people who have gone before them. But here was one who spoke on his own authority. And people noticed it. And people were in awe of it. Jesus' miracles declared who he was. People were left glorifying God for things that they had never seen before. In Jesus, the sick were granted healing. The lame were made to walk. The gospel was preached to the poor. Sinners were forgiven. The hungry were fed. The blind were given sight. And the dead were raised to life. Speaking of which, besides John 11, the Scriptures record two other occasions in which Jesus rose the dead to life. In Mark 5, Jesus brought Jairus' 12-year-old daughter back to life shortly after she had passed away while still in her bed. He took her by the hand and he said, Little girl, I say to you, get up. And up she came. In Luke 7, Jesus comes upon a funeral procession on their way to the grave. There's a widow crying over the loss of her only son. Jesus touches the funeral briar, says, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead boy sits up and begins to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. But Jesus' raising of Lazarus here in John 11 is distinctive in at least two ways. You see, those other resurrections didn't happen near Jerusalem, near the, near the heart of religious activity in Jesus' day. They happened out in Galilee, some distance away from Jerusalem. This occasion happens over a town named Bethany, less than two miles away, we're told in the text from Jerusalem, in the presence of many Jews who had been mourning with Mary and Martha over the loss of their brother Lazarus. There could be no excuse that Jesus' miraculous powers were just always done in some far distant corner of the world. Here was Jesus plainly manifesting in public with many eyewitnesses looking on His power over death. It's interesting, Paul, the Apostle Paul, mentions in one of his defenses before King Agrippa, when he's trying to persuade King Agrippa to believe in Christ, he tells him, he says, these things didn't happen in some strange corner of the world. You're aware of these events. The only reason Paul can say that is because it was true. 
He's talking to the king. He says, the things I'm telling you about Jesus, you've heard about. Everyone knows about this. We've seen it. Jesus' miracles were witnessed by many. Being right so close to Jerusalem makes this unique. And it leaves all the Jews there in Jerusalem without excuse, as if they had any already. But there's another thing that makes it very unique. On this occasion, Jesus does not arrive shortly after a little girl has passed away and is laying on her bed. He doesn't arrive as a man is being carried out to the grave. He arrives four days after a man has died. He's inside of the grave. The stone has been rolled against it. When Jesus asks for the stone to be removed, Martha objects. She says, Lord, he's, he's already decaying. It's been four days. In my studies in this passage, there are several theologians that argue that there was present within the Jewish populace a popular belief that a person's soul stayed with their body for up to three days following their death. If that is the case, it seems to make all further understanding as to why Jesus would wait until the fourth day to come. It would leave absolutely no doubt that what Jesus is doing here is raising a decomposing corpse to life. You see, all of Jesus' miracles displayed His mighty power, but there's something about raising the dead that just seems to up the ante especially for us in our own day. I mean, by God's grace, we have developed new technological advancements in medicine. We've seen dramatic improvements in our ability to help our fellow man. And we can applaud those things and give thanks to God for those things. You know, bone and joint replacements and prosthetics aid those who otherwise could not walk. Many of you saw the Olympics. There was even a man running in the track events who had a prosthetic leg competing with Olympic athletes. Improvements in eye and brain research are helping those who are nearly blind. Ear implants are helping those who can't hear. Advanced medicines and surgeries are healing those sick of deadly diseases and ailments. Now remember that there's still something much different with those things and the healing that Jesus provided. Can you imagine going to a doctor and upon walking into his exam room, him telling you, you're healed. Or, just go on home. He's like, what are you talking about? No diagnostic tests. No time in a hospital. No surgery. No prosthetics. No implants. No medicine. No rehabilitation. No bed rest. Just complete, instant, utter health. None of us can do that. Yet even with all of our modern medical advancements, there's one thing that most certainly lies beyond our power. We cannot stop death. We cannot stop death. It's appointed for men to die once, and you cannot avoid that meeting. No matter what you do to fight against particular diseases, eventually death will catch us all. And when it comes... We can't reverse it. Every other year here at the school, it's required that all of our staff and faculty go through CPR training. 
We do this to ensure that we're ready to render aid in case anyone needs it. We learn the importance of the very first few minutes after someone has stopped breathing. Immediate action can be the difference between life and death. We're also trained in the use of an AED. If you are familiar, the automated external defibrillator is designed to deliver a shock when the heart begins to shake. It begins to fibrillate this irregular shaking of the heart. And that electronic device is purposely constructed to stop the shaking and therefore reset the heart. Well, there's some interesting sensors built into the machine. What makes it wonderful is that it will not deliver a shock unless it's needed. It senses pulse, and if a normal pulse is in place, it won't deliver a shock because there's no need for it. And if there's no shaking or no pulse at all, it will not deliver a shock. Why? It's senseless. It's just there to stop the shaking. You see, CPR is a wonderful thing. It's very, very helpful, but CPR does not work on the dead. We cannot bring a body four days dead back to life. Only God can do that. But you see, Jesus' miracle is a sign as well. It points to a greater reality. Jesus can raise the dead to life. This includes not only the physically dead, but those who are spiritually dead. And this is good news indeed, because our problem, my friends, is much more than physical. We need help for our souls. We may study and we might refine our souls. We might discover new approaches to ourselves. We might provide others with good advice that can lead them to greater happiness. Remember, God's general grace is still with us. And we enjoy a whole lot of things in the world that He's created, even this fallen world. However, none of us can bring spiritually dead souls to life. Neither our own nor someone else's. Our aid and help extends right up to the precipice of death, but no further. If you catch a snake bite early enough, you can suck out the venom and help the person. But if the venom distributes itself throughout the body and causes complete and utter shutdown of all the organs, no matter how much anti-venom you apply, that person's dead. And since we all enter this life, not just sick, not just ailing, but spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 says, we know that help must come from someone who's able to give life to the dead. Help has to come from outside of ourselves if we're going to be rescued. We need the one who has power over death and life to minister to us. It's for this reason the joy ought to fill our hearts when we read here in John 11. Because we come face to face with Jesus, the one who raises the dead to life. He is the Savior. This passage, though, has other truths as well throughout. John 11 not only pictures a mighty, powerful Savior, Jesus Christ, but also Him who is a gracious, merciful, compassionate High Priest. You know, To have a hero that rescues you from death is an amazing thing. But to be granted eternal life by Him who not only saved you but cares about you and loves you and delights in you is something beyond our wildest imagination. You see, our salvation 
while it's free to us, came at a cost. Jesus bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. We don't have the high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. We can cast our cares upon Christ because we know that He cares for us. You see, Jesus breathed our, our air and He walked our sod. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and dwelt among us. He's intimately acquainted with all of our ways. Why would people encourage you to go to anyone else? We don't need any intermediary between us and Jesus. Jesus is the one intermediary. He is the mediator between God and men. He, as the God-man, is the one who reconciles sinful and dead people to the living, righteous, holy God. So what does this all mean for us, living in a world gone wrong? How are we to respond to the difficulties and trials of life? What solace are we to find when we fail? What comfort can we provide others? Well, in a sermon entitled A Greater Consolation, I want to to mention three consolations which provide comfort to those in need. Each one of these has both a lesser and greater extension. We all know these on several levels. First, there's a wonderful comfort in knowing you are not alone. There's a wonderful comfort in knowing you are not alone. And we first of all see this in the blessing of community. When we're confronted with pain and sorrow, there's nothing that provides comfort quite like knowing that we're not all alone. Perhaps you've heard the the idiom, misery loves company. That phrase is usually meant to say that those who are unhappy make other people unhappy as well. That somehow they just have a penchant for trying to make others not enjoy life either. Now, while we ought not find delight in making others sad, we do have a wonderful opportunity to minister to others by entering into their pain and weeping alongside of them. There is a solace and a comfort that is ministered to a person who is grieving and weeping when others come alongside and grieve and weep alongside of them. Just as those who are rejoicing love to have a party and have others rejoice with them, those who are weeping love to have those who enter into their pain, who walk in their shoes, who come alongside of them and weep. You know, when going through a tremendous tragedy, oftentimes we just don't know what to say. Especially if we're trying to minister to someone who's going through something very, very difficult. As a result, sometimes we can kind of like jumble our words and get nervous and sometimes not even know what to say. So then we become almost less approaching them. And the sad thing is, in that moment, the worst thing you can do is to just be absent. It would be much better to be present and say nothing. Oftentimes, that's really the best medicine in those moments is just a ministry of presence. Don't neglect the ministry of presence. Having a shoulder to cry on is wonderful. Having someone that just gives you a hug is wonderful. And in Mary and Martha's case, we're told that in the intervening time between having told Jesus about their brother's illness, he's now died. And it's now been four days. They haven't seen Jesus yet. 
By now, they've certainly received word back from him. Remember, he sent a message back saying, this will not end in death. But now they're here seeing Lazarus' dead body and putting it in the grave. But they're not alone. We're told some Jews from Jerusalem came down to comfort them. It was typical in those days in that area of the world for mourning to continue for some time and for a good number of people to be involved. Depending on the wealth of the family, sometimes they even hired professional mourners to come and weep and wail for an extended period of time. The Jews that are here ministering to Martha and Mary even follow Mary when Martha, having gone to see Jesus as he's coming towards town, comes back and tells Mary secretly, Hey, Jesus is here. He wants to see you. Now, those who are comforting Mary don't hear those words. They see Mary leave. And again, in an effort just to be with her, decide in their minds, she must be going out to see the grave. Little does Mary know that they are actually at some point going to visit the grave. And little does anyone know what Jesus is about to do. But they accompany her. They're traveling with her. They're providing some comfort, some solace. There's a blessing associated with being in community that people who are off by themselves don't enjoy. God has marvelous blessings for His children. And He's brought us together into a family. That's why church membership is important. Being a part of a local church. Having a place where you can bear griefs and sorrows and carry those for one another. and Shoulder that together. Having a place where you know people when they tell you that they're praying for you, they really are. There's something so astoundingly helpful about community. Isn't it wonderful that God has not only saved a couple of isolated Christians, but He's brought us into a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a blessing here. But you know, there's, the reason why there's blessing here is because there's an even greater blessing that's found in Christ's presence. Found in the very presence of Christ. Both Martha and Mary must have at least spoken about one thing with one another. How do I know that? Well, it's the exact same thing that comes out of both women's mouths the moment that they see Jesus. What is it that's plaguing their minds? What is it that they, they've got a moment and the first thing out of their, mind is, out of their mouth is this, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. I think this announcement is complex. And, you know, a lot of times we just, we just don't have the ability to, to know what are all the emotions and thoughts behind a statement. We do our best with context to try to get at that. But we can try to imagine ourselves there. And as that's being said to Jesus, I think that there's something both commendable in those words as well as correctable. I think there's, there's some flaws in the statement. There's some transparency and honesty, which is wonderful. And I think there's some faith and trust in there too. It's a wonderful example of just petition and prayer before the Lord. Just being genuine and real. There's a mixture of, for any Christian, there's a mixture of faith and at times unbelief and struggle and heartache and hope. On the one hand, this statement is an expression of hope and faith and trust. 
The women have no doubt here that Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' death. Isn't that cool? And that's a cool statement. They're not even questioning that. Jesus, if you had been here, our brother would still be living. That's a statement of faith. They have no doubt about Jesus' ability to preserve their brother had he been there. Mary's statement is made only after she's fallen at Jesus' feet. She falls at Jesus' feet and then says that. Martha, when she makes her statement, adds after that statement, yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. That statement even borders on the line that I still think you can do something here, Jesus. On the other hand, the expression needs further faith and further understanding. Isn't it true for all of us as Christians in a sense, you know, we believe and yet we seek greater understanding and greater knowledge and greater relationship with our Lord. And there's some greater information here for them to contemplate and to consider. For example, was it Jesus' physical presence that prevented him from doing something in Lazarus' case? Remember a certain centurion that came to Jesus asking for healing for his servant? Remember Jesus begins to walk that way and the centurion says, no, 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 you don't have to come. Just say the word. I'm a centurion. I know what it is to have people under me. And I tell them to do something and they go and do it. Jesus, you can just say the word and it will be done. Remember, Jesus responds to this and says, such faith isn't even found in Jerusalem. You see, Jesus' physical presence wasn't required in order for him to do something for Lazarus. He could have done something just as easily at a distance as if he was bodily present there. That's something for them to learn. Another thing is even after her further statement of belief that Jesus he goes, you know, even now, Jesus, whatever you say, make this is Martha, you know, even what you say now, it, it'll be effectual. It seems that Martha steps back from that statement. I mean, it sounds so great. It's like, wow, is she anticipating exactly what Jesus is about to do? But then as soon as Jesus says, He's going to live. He's going to rise again. Martha seems to not trust to hope that Lazarus will actually be raised from the dead right then and there. She says, well, I know that's something on the last day that's going to happen. She's speaking of a much later time. And also later on, remember when Jesus has removed the stone, it's Martha again who says, no, 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 he's already decomposing. Leave the stone in place. You see how there's both faith and trust as well as doubt and question. There's also a whole lot of emotion, I'm sure, as anyone who has dealt with losing a loved one and the sorrow and grief that accompanies that. The point is that Jesus could have prevented the death of Lazarus regardless of where he happened to be upon earth at the time of it. The death was permitted and planned. Remember Jesus, we saw last time, Jesus, when he's told about it, he stays exactly where he is. He doesn't come rushing to Lazarus. The death was planned as an opportunity to display the glory of God operating in and through Jesus Christ. God had a glorious purpose for the delay as we saw last time. You see, Martha and Mary were never really alone. 
And there is no greater encouragement than to know that Jesus is with us no matter where we go. Matthew 28, 18-20 in the famous Great Commission as we remember it. We focus a whole lot on authority being given to Jesus, the command to make disciples. In your going, make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them. Teach them. But then appended to all of that is that wonderful promise. right? And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. We read in Romans 8, 38 and 39, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a beautiful declaration. Not even death will separate us from Jesus. Death separates friends all the time, but it won't separate us from our friend Jesus Christ. We too can find solace in the presence of community, and in the very presence of Jesus. He is with us. Secondly, remember, you not only have company, but you also have someone who cares. You have someone who cares. And there is a difference, isn't there? We can sometimes be in a room filled with people, not alone, but feel alone. We not only have someone with us, but we have someone who cares about us. And first again, I begin with the compassion of friends. We're reminded of the comfort. As I was thinking through this, I was thinking about an example of this, and I couldn't help but think about Job and the sufferings and hardship that he underwent and the friends that he had. Remember, Job, in the course of a day, lost nearly everything that he had. Servants, possessions, children. And then his wife is even giving him bad counsel. Most of the book of Job is a big continual cycle of theological debates regarding the source and cause of Job's sufferings. And that discussion, if you will be reminded of it, does it provide Job with a lot of comfort? Or a lot of heartache. It's the latter. And at the end, this cycle of discussions is something that Job's friends need forgiveness for. You can read about it in Job 42. God addresses those friends and tells them so. And says that they need to get Job to pray for them. This is what we must not do. This is not being a friend in a time of grief and sorrow But there is a bright moment, and sometimes we skip past it because most of the book is a bad example. But there is a good example that happens before they open their mouth. It happens in Job chapter 2. Listen to this in verses 11 through 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. Do you see this? Their intentions at the very beginning were good. They heard about the suffering. They came to sympathize with him. They came to comfort him. And I dare say, they did a good job for the first seven days. Listen, they lifted up their eyes at a distance. They didn't recognize him. They raised their voices and they wept. Each one of them tore his robe. They threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Listen, 
Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. Lesson to be learned. Keep your mouth shut. It's nice not being alone when we're hurting, but it's even better to be with those who genuinely care for us and enter into our grief with us and bear our sorrows. There's nothing quite like it. Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Compassion of friends is so very important. But even more important is the compassion of Christ. As we've already mentioned, we're struck not only by the power of Christ, but His compassion throughout His earthly ministry. You remember this. His miracles were not just displays of His power. Yes, they were. They displayed His divine prerogatives, His ability to deal with things that no one else can. Think of the woman with the issue of blood who had seen physicians time without number and they couldn't help her. And meanwhile, she barely touches the hem of Jesus' garment and she's completely made well. They were a display of His power, but they were also a display of His desire to ease the aches and pains of humans living in a fallen world. We read in verses 33 through 37. Pick up here with me. Chapter 11, verses 33 through 37. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. There is no little discussion as to what emotions Jesus is demonstrating here on this occasion. It seems to be a mixture of holy anger and human sorrow. The word there, moved in spirit, some have tried to define as like the kind of snort that a horse might make. Like that sort of thing. Not very good, it's more like a pig. But anyway, that kind of anger, eliciting some sort of vexation of spirit... And then we have this very short verse, Jesus wept. It's a lot of question as to what's going on there in our Lord's mind and heart. And where is this arising from? At bare minimum, Jesus is expressing sympathy for Martha and Mary who are grieving over the loss of their brother. Even though Jesus knows what He's about to do with Lazarus, He's going to bring him to life in just a moment, This doesn't divorce him from entering into the sorrow of these two sisters and considering the pain and suffering that Lazarus may have gone through leading up to his own death. In fact, this is precisely what Jesus has done for us. He's taken our sorrows upon Himself. This was even prophesied in Isaiah 53, 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrow He carried. Now, part of the crowd that's there interprets it in this manner. They say, see how He loved Him. It's an expression of love for us to enter into other people's sorrows, to bear those burdens upon our shoulders. Certainly there's an element of that in here. It may also be an expression in reference to the unbelief present in some of the crowd. We see in the very last verse that we read here, verse 37, that some of them said, 
Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Now, that question might be just an honest inquiry. I mean, we've seen Jesus heal this guy born blind. Something we've never seen happen ever before. Couldn't he have stopped this from happening? It's also possible this question is laced with skepticism. It may be that some in the crowd think that Jesus' tears reflected the same sort of despair that they felt. You know, we feel impotent and powerless in the face of death. And maybe they feel similarly, they think that that's what Jesus is experiencing. If that's the origin of this statement, Jesus may have been stirred to anger and tears over the persistent unbelief of all those around him. It's also possible that Jesus is disappointed in the sisters who are still struggling to take him at his word and believe him completely. Remember, he had already sent a message saying this will not end in death. He's not even told Martha directly he's going to live again. They seem they still are struggling in believing. The final possibility is that Jesus was righteously indignant and sorrowful over the sheer fact of situations like these. Sickness, death, sorrow. Understand, friends, they were not part of God's original creation. They're all inserted as a result of sin. They're all the horrible consequence of sin. Sin has wreaked havoc on the beautiful world which God created. A horrible reality that we all presently struggle with. But one, praise the Lord, that God will ultimately undo one day. It's only a matter of time. But in the meantime, sin and death are filled with sorrow even if resurrection is yet to follow. Just because we know that resurrection is coming doesn't mean that we don't sorrow over the present experience of sin. God has an ultimate plan. He's bringing everything to His perfect, ultimate plan in the end. But that doesn't mean that there cannot be expressions of sorrow in the present. I heard this past week that our first grade teacher had her students make masterpieces out of Play-Doh. And then took her students on a little field trip around the campus. And while they were doing that, asked our second grade teacher to take the second graders into that classroom and destroy all the masterpieces. When the first graders entered, re-entered the room, certainly there was shock and horror, I'm sure. I was not there. But the point of the moment it was all crafted to show the devastation that sin leaves in its wake. God created a beautiful and marvelous world, but sin has wreaked havoc upon that world. The good news is, though, sin won't have the final word. Isn't it glorious that Jesus is not only present with His loved ones, but He cares for them. He enters into their hardships. He bears their burdens. Jesus is not a stoic. Some people think that you know spiritual maturity is being stoic, unfeeling, unmoved. That's not the example Jesus gives. God gave us emotions. And yes, those emotions can sometimes... Get, you know, the cart before the horse can drive us in the wrong direction, but emotions that are properly placed within God's instruction are wonderful tools to be used for His glory. Sorrow and joy alike can be used for God's purposes. Jesus advances towards Lazarus' tomb, and He does so not with cold unconcern. He's not stoic about the situation. I believe there's a mixture of all sorts of things going on there. All in the perfect holiness of Christ. Flaming wrathfully indignant towards 
man's enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Grieving alongside of these women who are crying. Jesus accomplishes redemption all the while feeling our oppression. He entered into our sorrow. He shed tears even as He did battle to overcome our sin. It would not be long after this that Jesus' enemies would respond to Him in these events by arresting Him and crucifying Him. But before that happened, Jesus went out to a little garden called Gethsemane. And in that garden, Jesus shed tears. Tears of blood. You see, Jesus would accomplish His ultimate work of redemption and He would be victorious over death. But it wouldn't come without Him bearing sorrows and bearing sin on our behalf. And now when we grieve as Christians, we can grieve with hope because of what Christ has accomplished. We had read from 2 Corinthians 1 about our God who is a God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. You're not alone. Christ cares for you. Third, you not only have a sympathizer, you have a Savior. You not only have someone who sympathizes with your weakness, but you have real and genuine help. You have someone to save you. You have someone to save you. The limits of human aid are evident. We return to where we began this morning. Death instantly confronts us with the limits of our ability to help those who are in sorrow and pain. J.C. Ryle said, To show sympathy and kindness to the sorrowful is good for our own souls, whether we know it or not. To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. To weep with them that weep. To try to bear one another's burdens and lighten one another's cares. Listen, this will make no atonement for sin and will not take us to heaven. Yet it is healthy employment for our hearts. An employment which none ought to despise. J.C. Rouse says there's something wonderful and good. There's genuine joy and happiness in this. It won't forgive your sins. It won't make your dead heart alive. It won't cause you to be born again. But these are all good activities to be engaged in. We can provide a shoulder to cry on. We can offer words of encouragement. We can show love in tangible ways. I mean, just because we can't cause the dead to spring to life doesn't mean we can't do what we can do. We can't help. But we cannot make wrongs right. Think for just a moment about our system of justice. The system of justice attempts to uphold the laws of our land with a sense of and a sense of rightness, or righteousness. The scriptural idea, for example, behind capital punishment is to uphold the value of human life. Men are made in God's image. Therefore, if someone takes the life of another, his life should be taken. Think 
And there's a whole lot of criminals that get away. And even if justice is served, and someone who murders someone else in cold blood is themselves put to death, executed, understand that that doesn't ultimately right the wrong, does it? People who lost their loved ones don't get them back. Our penal system does not bring about true and total righting of wrongs. If it were to, it would bring that person who was murdered back to life. And then we deal with the perpetrator of the crime. You see, we're limited in what we can accomplish. We cannot bring the dead back to life. But God is not affected by such limits. Note the supremacy of Christ's consolation. Jesus tells Martha plainly, your brother will rise again. Martha provides a very matter-of-fact eschatological answer. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Martha understood what the Old Testament said regarding the fact that there's going to be an ultimate resurrection one day. It may have been something that she was accustomed to hearing by now. It's as if to say, yes, yes. She's saying here, yes, yes, I know one day in the future there'll be a final resurrection. But it's almost like if we get a pen to that. But well, how does it help me now? I'm, I'm sorrowful now. Yes, one day that will happen, Jesus. But I'm in pain now. I need help now. She needed a nearer. She needed a greater consolation. What's so amazing about the passage is that Jesus is ready to offer that. He's saying, you don't have to wait till later. It's here, present, here and now. Jesus pushes home his point. Rather than focusing on Lazarus' death or on the final eschatological resurrection, Jesus wants to redirect Martha's attention to himself. And here we get the fifth of seven I am statements given in John's Gospel by Jesus himself. Here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus declares, you need travel no further. You need wait no longer. I am the resurrection and the life. Look to me, Martha. I'm it. He's not just promising a future good. He's offering a present gift. The gift is here now. And as the resurrection, Jesus explains, the one believing in me, even if he dies, he lives. Even if he dies, he will live. You see, those who are in Christ will not be separated from Him even by death. Physical death cannot interrupt the continuation of eternal life. If you've been given eternal life, when does eternal life end? It doesn't. Even if you die, you live. As a resurrection, Jesus says, all those who die... Or in me will live. And as the life, Jesus explains, everyone living and believing in me will never, ever die. The one having eternal life may experience the separation of soul from body, but never the separation of one's soul from God. And ultimately, what is life? What is eternal life? It's knowing God and His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He sent, as Jesus describes it in John 17. Jesus' victory over death ensures that its sting has been removed. Death is a defeated enemy. It now just ushers those in Christ into Christ's presence. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Philippians 
You see, what is Jesus doing here? He's saying, I am your ultimate consolation. If we look to Him and believe in Him, we'll not only be assured of the resurrection on the last day, yes, 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 but we'll experience here and now something of that eternal life to which resurrection is a prelude. He will cause us to be brought from death to life and grant us eternal life here and now and ensure that not even death will separate us from our Savior and Lord. Jesus then asks Martha, do you believe this? Martha responds by giving what some people consider to be the fullest, if not one of the fullest, confessions of faith yet. She says, I believe you are, number one, the Messiah. The statement was made by Andrew in John 1, 41. Secondly, you're the Son of God. That statement was made by John the Baptist, Nathaniel, and the disciples in the Gospel of John. And then she adds to that, who comes into the world. Just as the prophets foretold in Isaiah 9, 6 and Micah 5, 2. She's looking to Jesus. So what consolation can be offered to the dead, to losers, to sinners? Well, the gospel, the good news, declares that Jesus Christ, the God-man, has offered himself up on behalf of sinners. And this is the most blessed consolation for all of us who as sinners have fallen short of the glory of God. See, admitting that you're a loser... Admitting that you're a failure, admitting that you're a sinner, is the best of places to be. Because Jesus came for losers and failures and sinners. For while we have earned what we've earned for ourselves is death, the free gift of God, the marvelous consolation prize which God offers all losers, all failures, is what? Eternal life. What consolation prize comes close to that one? He offers eternal life to losers, to failures, to sinners. It's offered to us in Jesus Christ. What blessed news that Jesus has come to rescue us. Because you see, you can't receive this prize because of your effort. Not on the basis of deeds done in righteousness which we have done, but because of Christ's perfect work done on our behalf. Jesus bore our grief and carried our sorrows. You see, Jesus wept that our tears might be wiped away. He was cursed that we might be blessed. He was stricken that we might be made well. And then He gave His life that ours might be saved. He died that we might live. And He rose again that death might be defeated and His righteousness granted to our bankrupt accounts. No better news has ever been announced to losers. No consolation prize has ever been so great. All you who are thirsty, come and drink everlasting water. All you who are hungry, come and eat bread from heaven. All you who are naked, be clothed with spotless garments. All you who are weary, come and find rest. All you who are dead, come and find life. In Jesus you will find all these blessings. For Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And there is no greater consolation for spiritually dead people than a living, life-giving Savior. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that You have given this consolation prize. Lord, I am chief of losers. I am skilled at failing. I am a horrible sinner. And were it not for Your marvelous grace, mercy, and love, there would be absolutely no hope for me. I was alone. I was a stranger. And You invited me in. I was naked and You clothed me. I was hungry and You fed me. I was dead and You breathed life into me. Lord, it is our longing desire that as we proclaim this marvelous news of the Gospel, that You would awaken the dead to life. I know by oratory I can't save anyone. I know it's not my words. It's not some persuasion that I can elicit just a weak and frail vessel full of my own faults and failings. But God, You're a marvelous Savior. And You've given Your incredible Son. What gift is greater? And now You offer Him as the resurrection in life. If men will Repent, turn to Him, they'll be saved. We pray that You work on hearts in these moments. And even as we sing of Your amazing grace, may You make that grace so tangible to us. May You remind us of how amazing grace is. And may You invite those who are still dead in sins unto Christ this morning. Save them for your glory and kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.